This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. It's the Hockey News Podcast here with Matt Larkin and Ken Campbell and Ryan Kennedy. And if you look at the news cycle this week, we're, we're playing the hits. We've got more Tom Wilson. We've got more William Nylander. It feels like this show could have been a month ago or now or maybe a month from now. Who knows? But before we get to the hot topics, uh, I wanted to remind everyone, hockey news readers or potential readers, it's the holiday season. We have a great offer if you want to become a member. It's buy one get three free with our subscriptions. If you see the link right here, if you're watching, here it is. I'm going to point where I believe the link is. If you're listening, just go to that URL on the website, and that's that. Now let's get to the good stuff, the hot topics. Yeah. First of all, we've got to talk about William Nylander. It finally happened at the 11th hour. Six-year deal with the Toronto Maple Leafs, $6.9 million cap hit. A lot to unpack, but first of all, who do you guys think wins this deal? I think it's a win-win. I really do think it's a win-win because the Leafs get the get their cap hit. They they get it under seven million, and Nylander gets his money because when you when you factor everything in and and you take off you know what he's going to be docked this year off of the te, off of the ten million uh, base salary and everything, he's going to make an average of seven point three million dollars a year on this deal. That's good for William Nylander. It's also good for the Maple Leafs because they get him under seven. Uh, for the for the bulk of this deal, and I th I think it's it's really interesting how it was structured. There's a lot of signing bonus money in this deal. Next year is the the signing bonus is 8.3 million, and the salary is 700,000. That would lead me to believe that William Nylander is not going to be a Maple Leaf for this entire deal. I think that you know uh, those 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 things are payable July 1st. I could see the Leafs paying out that 8.3 million on July 1st of next year, and then some team that needs to get up to the cap or or you know has some good young prospects that they want to trade for him, but you know needs to, is in a financial bind. I could see them trying to make a deal for William Nylander. Mm. Interesting. I really like the deal for Kyle Dubas um, for all the same reasons that, that Ken pointed out. It's a good deal for both sides, no doubt. But I think for a young GM who is sort of making his bones at the top level, this whole scenario was a bit of a referendum on, you know, how tough he can be and, and can he pull it off. I mean, let's, let's not forget this whole thing could have fallen apart and Nylander would have been on the sidelines for the rest of the year. Dubas stuck to his guns. He didn't crack. As you said, he got Nylander for under seven uh, cap hit, and he proved that he would go right up to the wire and he wouldn't flinch. So I think this is really good for him because now we got to think, and I know Leaf fans, you don't want to think about anything contract-wise again, but Jake Gardner is a UFA in this summer. So what happens in that scenario? There's going to be a lot of tough decisions because obviously you have those high-end contracts. We already know about Matthews and Marner coming up for new deals, but Dubas has a lot on his plate and I think with this first strike, he has said that he's for real and you're not going to take advantage of the new guy. Yeah, I, th I think it was really important that neither side of this came away looking like they got hosed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it, it was really important. And, and I think that's exactly what happened in this case. You know, the Leafs get their cap hit and Nylander gets his money and they get, they get a, the kind of deal, the way it's structured, Nylander gets... I think, well, he gets all of his money this year, and then he gets $8.3 million 
uh, next year. So he's getting more than $17 million in the first seven months of this contract. So he gets his money and, and they get their cap hit and they structure it so that they can deal them down the road if they have to. Right, and, and I do think it puts the Leafs in a bit of an urgent situation. So Ryan, you mentioned Jake Gardner. I personally think Gardner's fate is sealed. He's gone this summer. Seems you like have it. to put all your focus on getting Matthews and Marner signed, assuming there's not a holdout into next December <laughs> with those two, but we'll worry about that later. And Kasperi Kapanen. Don't forget Kapanen. him. Right? Don't forget Kasperi Kapanen. Kasperi Kapanen made a lot of money by William Nylander he holding did. out. And he doesn't have arbitration rights, right? So really, his only leverage is to do exactly what William Nylander did. That's right. If he, wa- if he wants to get the big money. But then you've got, you know, you've got Josh Lavo, who's, who's got arbitration rights, Gareth Sparks. They've got three or four guys, restricted free agents, who all have arbitration rights. So they've got to figure out what to do with them. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Matt. I mean, I, I think you've got to you've got to assume that Justin Hall, uh, you know, Timothy Liljegren and Travis Dermott are going to be on this blue line next year because yeah. they're all on entry level deals that will be cheap and they'll be able to fit them in. Or raise, maybe Erasmus Sandin replacing Jake Gardner on the left side of that blue line. Um, but the other thing about the situation for the Leafs, I personally think it creates a lot of urgency for Dubas and the Leafs to be major renters this year yep. because it's not going to be as easy next summer once the, once the Leafs are really pressed up against the cap with the big contracts, they're not going to have the same flexibility. So I think this year, the Leafs, especially look at their record. They're right up there at the top of the league. Mm-hmm. You know they need that right shot defenseman. I think, personally, it means they have to be extremely aggressive and understand that this year might actually be the best chance they have at the Stanley Cup and the chance to ice the best team they could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Moving on to Tom Wilson. It's this week in Tom Wilson cheap shots or, <laughs> or supposed cheap shots. It was a collision with Brett Sini. It was just nine games since Tom Wilson got back from his suspension, which was appealed down from 20 to, I believe, 14 games. Uh, I look at this hit personally, and I know people say we should not give Tom Wilson the benefit of the doubt anymore, but I still personally think you have to look at every incident Absolutely. separately. And if you look at Tom Wilson's path to the puck, and this is a thing that the Department of Player Safety looks at a lot, did you alter your path? Did you choose to change your course to go after a hit? Did you extend a limb? Any targeting motions? I didn't see any of that. I saw Wilson's head up, staring at where the play was, and I don't think he even saw Cini personally. So I think it was the right decision to not discipline him. A lot of people are saying, oh, baloney, baloney, come on, we know what he's doing. But personally, I, I call it the oh, come on defense. Oh, come on, do you really think Tom Wilson, nine games in, knowing that his next suspension might be 50 games, is going to say, yeah, I'm just going to take out this Brett Cini guy? No, I think that was totally accidental, and I like the decision. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, 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 I don't like all of the decision, but I like the decision. I, like, anybody who knows me knows me. I knows I hate this garbage more than anybody else. Uh, but I just don't see anything in what Tom Wilson did that rises to the level of a suspension. You know, can anybody tell me why Eric Johnson was playing Sunday night for the Colorado Avalanche after his elbow on on Alexander Steen? Uh, You know, I mean, Chris Kunitz on on Travis Hamannick on Sunday night, those were a hundred times worse than I think what Tom Wilson did. And I think it was an incidental collision. Where I have a problem with the NHL's wheel of justice here is they come out and they say, okay, no discipline, no further discipline, we're okay with a match penalty. Okay, either if, if he didn't do anything wrong, then rescind the match penalty. It shouldn't be a match penalty. It shouldn't well, even have been. If say, you don't think there's anything wrong, it shouldn't even have been a penalty. So how does it rise to the level of being a match penalty and not a suspension? Because it stops. I don't get because the logic. Because it stops at a match penalty. Yeah, right? but, but I'm explaining. But I know, why, I'm telling you, I know this for a fact. It has been explained to me before. 
So what it is, is it's, it's saying, okay, you know what? The rest of the game, that was good enough. A big, big penalty, but we don't have to give you another game. So it's graded on degrees. Okay, but, but, if, he, but, if, he, but if, you're, if you're applying the logic of, did he change his course? Did he try to get out of the way? Did he avoid the hit? It, was all, it all points to incidental contact. So why is that a match penalty? Yeah, this case Then I you agree. take it away, you rescind the match penalty, or you suspend him. You can't do both. And that's where, in my opinion, what I like to call the NHL wheel of justice, it, I don't get it. I don't get the logic. Yeah. For me, I think this is one of those scenarios that we've talked a lot about in the hypothetical when it comes to headshots, which is big guy, little guy. You know, Brett Sini, I think he's about 5'9", maybe even 5'8". Tom Wilson, obviously, is 6'4". I, I didn't see any altering of the path. I don't see any reason why Tom Wilson would want to take out Brett Sini. This In just fact, it looks like, like he's trying to get out of the way at one point. Yeah, this just know? seems like something that happened. Unfortunately, it happened with a guy that has been suspended many times. But I, I, I think this is just a matter of, you know, it was a bad spot. And hopefully there are not, you know, long-term uh, problems for Brett Sini because of the hit. It was just... Bad luck. It's one of those things. I mean, yeah. bad things sometimes happen in a contact game. And and I know that there's a lot of people that think that, you know, he it was too late and it was premeditated and everything. Uh, like, I, like I said, I hate these hits more than anybody else. But I, I have to take it in isolation. And when I look at that hit in isolation, I don't see anything that levels that raises it to the level of a suspension or even a penalty. When you say big guy, little guy, I think of Tommy Boy, fat guy in a little coat. Yes. Fat guy in a little coat. Yeah. Uh, the next piece of news we're going to talk about, by the time you listen to or watch this, you might know this already, uh, but we're about to hear an announcement on Seattle, and part of that announcement might be uh, a preview of future divisional alignment that would have Arizona moving to the Central Division. I'm going to do one of these to myself because I've been calling for this for more than a year now, saying move Arizona to the Central. But what I'm wondering is, do you guys think this is a precursor to the second half of the idea I've been pitching, which is eventually converting Arizona to Houston, which is in a Central time zone? I personally think it's a preview of maybe seeing that change down the road, setting Arizona up. But what do you think? I could not agree with you on that. I think it's a function. Oh, I, I thought he was going to say cannot yeah. agree with you more. No, I, I cannot yeah. agree with you on that. I think it's a function of Arizona being the closest team to the central time zone, so oh. it makes sense <laughs> to put them in. And, and I mean, you, you and your science. <laughs> yeah, college boy. No, you, no but, but I mean, you talk about Edmonton and, 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 and Calgary, which are slightly to the west of, of, of Phoenix, um, but you're not going to split those two teams up. You're not going to put right. one of those teams in the central. So it only makes sense that Arizona goes in the central in this situation. I really think, Matt, that, that when it comes to this stuff, I don't think they think about that stuff as, as on the forefront. Like, I'm sure they'd love to have it all balanced divisions between East and West and everything, but they're looking at the best markets and what works best, and I think they worry about everything after that. They worry about everything after that. And, and if it comes to pass that Arizona doesn't, doesn't survive and, and it moves to Houston, uh, then you know, that works out perfectly. But 
if, if, if Arizona stays in the league, I could see the league expanding to Houston in a couple of years and having 33 teams. I mean, when, when, when Atlanta moved to, uh, to Winnipeg, when the Thrashers moved to Winnipeg, they kept them in the Southeast Division for a, at least a year, mm-hmm. uh, if not more. I think they worry about what the best markets are, what the best situation is for the league, and all the alignment and number stuff, they worry about that later. I think it's, you, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to go on, on what's best you know, what's the best market for the league? Yeah, and I would say that the one sort of silver lining for the Coyotes, if they do move to the Central, is that in terms of attendance, which obviously has been a big problem in Arizona for years, all of a sudden your division rivals now, Chicago, Minnesota, St. Louis, these are a lot of markets where I could see people retiring from the Midwest and living in the outskirts of Phoenix. Oh, I know a guy. I know a cop from Chicago. Shout out, Larry. He, he's from Chicago and he moved to Arizona. There, there you go. go. So I cool think, story, bro. There you go. I think uh, this could actually help. I mean, they won't be wearing Coyotes jerseys in the And their arena will still be 800 miles away from the city. It will. <laughs> but a lot of these people, they might be living in the exurbs of the suburbs. They, they might live in Glendale for all we know. It might actually just give a bit of a bump uh, to the attendance because you have those snowbirds coming down, whereas obviously if you live in LA, you're not gonna drive to, or move to Arizona, because it's already warm. And, and, nice bl- and if you're a Blackhawks fan, you get to see half of your former That's team. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All they, sense, yeah, yeah, all they do is trade with one another. They right? could have like 2010 <laughs> reunion night. Yeah. All right, it's fantasy insider time, and one rule that I sort of preach to myself, in the mirror maybe, uh, is when a, a guy with first-round pedigree gets called up, if you're in a deep league and you have somebody droppable, just grab him and worry about what happens later. So Ely Tolvin of the Predators, maybe he's not going to be on your roster in a month, but you just go and get him now because he has an opportunity. He's the type of player whose game only works in a scoring line role. He's not a checker, of course. He's not a physical player. No. And he looked, admittedly, in over his head in his brief cup, cup of coffee coming over from the KHL last year but he has an opportunity. It is there because of Philip Forsberg injury. We're seeing right now Tolvanen in the top six on a line with Kelly Yarncroft, Craig Smith. So just go get him and see what happens because we know he's flashed. I mean, he was the best junior age player in KHL history. He broke Evgeny Kuznetsov's records last year. There's no doubting his ability. We don't know if it's going to translate to the North American game, but when it's free to find out, that's a player you always grab off the waiver wire. Uh, next up, uh, this is a great pickup, Nick Schmaltz. And again, this is another rule. When a player with high-end pedigree gets acquired in a trade, it's not like the team's new coach is going to say, you know what, we got Nick Schmaltz, uh, let's put him on the fourth line, see what he can do in a check-in role. I don't know why. That's Larry from Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) But we know Nick Schmaltz was going to get a big opportunity, and it's already there. He's playing with Alex Galchenyuk, Clayton Keller. They've loaded up a super line. The minutes are big. They're, you know, 20 minutes or so per game. Great opportunity for Nick Schmaltz to be a real difference-making player, especially in deep leagues. That's another guy you want to grab if he's available immediately. The other guy, this is more of a deep league ad, Nick Ritchie. He's always had some goal-scoring touch, and we know he's a very physical player. If you're in a league that counts hits, he's kind of like the Tom Wilson, Michael Furland type of player. Michael Furland's out with the concussion. If you've lost Furland right now, then Ritchie's the perfect replacement, has a very similar game, so go get him. Future watch time. Ryan, you have the floor, my friend. All right, so let's start off with the 2019 draft. Connor McMichael uh, (laughs) from the London Knights in the OHL. Seven points in his past five games. uh, Right now leading the London Knights in scoring. 27 points in 26 games. Here's what I like about Connor McMichael. The London Knights throughout the season have added talent. 
sometimes it was early, you know, getting Liam Foodie back from the Columbus Blue Jackets training camp. But there have also been more recent acquisitions. Alex Fermentin had been up with the Ottawa Senators in the NHL. He got sent back to London. Paul Cotter, who had been at Western Michigan University, decided to go the major junior route. He's a Vegas Golden Knights pick. He's with London now. Now, with Fermentin and Cotter coming back, I thought to myself, well, Connor McMichael, maybe the production's going to drop off a bit because, you know, there's only, there's only one puck on the ice and you can only have so many top six guys and London was already pretty good. But McMichael is still producing. He's got a natural touch. He knows where to go on the ice. got a great shot. And the Knights are just on fire. Uh, 17 games without a regulation loss. 16-0-1. They're going to be a huge player. And I think with McMichael, the skills he has shown so far uh, look great for the future when some of those guys move on next year to turn pro. Now, another guy who's very hot right now uh, is Joe Valeno, the Detroit Red Wings first rounder, playing with Drummondville in the Quebec League, 17 points in his past five games. He's now up to 45 points in 25 games, one of the top scorers in the Quebec League. That's ex- you would say that's exceptional, wouldn't you? I would say that's <laughs> exceptional. And, uh, yeah, it's funny because Valeno was the first Quebec League talent to get exceptional status to enter the league a year early uh, with the St. John Sea Dogs. Played pretty well for St. John. They ended up trading him. You know, During his draft year, he had a lot of pressure on himself. Didn't produce the way we thought he would, but he's back now. He's, I think he's a lot more relaxed. The good thing about Valeno and Red Wings fans, remember this because you'll be seeing him sooner than later, plays with a great amount of pace. He was a quick guy, a lot of skill. Um, I'd love to see him on the World Junior Team for Canada this year. We'll see if that happens once you know camp breaks in late December. But he does a lot of good things out there, and obviously the offense is at the level that we first expected when he got that exceptional status. It's fun to see Detroit finally starting to build something. They finally had to bottom out, yeah. finally get some legitimate prospects, but getting Valeno and Zadina in the same draft, what a coup. Indeed. Yeah, it was a really good draft for the Red Wings. And I'm, the good thing, too, is that they made a lot of picks. That's what I, I like. You, you get that breadth, and it just expands your pool so much more when you have those options. From the magazine, we're still looking deeper into our goalie issue. And Ryan did a story on Keith Kincaid. I learned a lot about Keith Kincaid, and I think a lot of people don't know a ton about him, but he's an interesting cat, so why don't you tell us a bit more about him? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I first pitched the idea, you know, New Jersey snuck into the playoffs last year. Corey Schneider was hurt for most of that run, and when he came back, he wasn't as effective. Kincaid really helped them past the the finish line and what was interesting to me is to see if he could keep doing it this year and you know again Schneider has really struggled obviously he's got the big contract but his zero wins this year you know Keith Kincaid has become the starter and what was interesting to me was that speaking with Kincaid he was saying like look I, I, I didn't want to be satisfied being a backup you know as a goaltender as a professional you want to be that guy in net and like a lot of netminders, you know, he's, he's got his quirks, and that made him really fun to talk to. It kind of reminded me of speaking with Mike McKenna uh, last year during the AHL final, where, you know, they just kind of have a different philosophical look on life. And it, it's kind of fun where, you know, Keith Kincaid was saying that he gets hungry between periods. So he goes for the big soft pretzels that you can get at rinks. When I asked him what he likes to do, you know, away from the rink, he said he likes to nap. You know, and it's like, yeah, you know, who doesn't like a good nap? And I know all hockey players nap, but for him it's like, eh, that's what I like to do right now. He just had a very sort of, like, 
cool, calm demeanor. Uh, it was interesting to see uh, how he kind of laid out his life, you know, being in juniors, uh, playing in the NHL. He wanted to go the college route and, and go somewhere where he could get starts. So we went to Union. Uh, he knew that he wanted to leave after a couple of years and turn pro. He made that happen. He got that first contract with New Jersey. And, it, you know, in an industry and in a, a sport where so much can happen, it's kind of fun to see a guy like Kincaid hit those marks. Next up, it's Kenneth's turn to talk. I'm sure he's ready for his hottest. It's been a while. Hot like it. You takes. guys did like three segments. I didn't have anything yeah, we, to say. We were just giving everyone a break. You know? <laughs> okay. So now, but now it's all yours. All right. Floor. Thank you so much. You're Matt. welcome. You're welcome, um, Well, as we all know, William Nylander signed his, his contract, and the Leafs are looking very much like a Stanley Cup contender. There, there's only one problem with that. And that is that they're going to lose in the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> he was saying this the last game we were at. I was saying it. I was saying it when they signed John Tavares. Mm. They're going to lose in the first round of the playoffs <laughs> it, for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, not all teams, but historically, a lot of teams have had to get that major slap in the face in the first round before they learn to win. You know, I mean, the year before the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup, they were up three nothing on Philadelphia and lost in seven and we're up 3-0 in Game 7. Okay, so, so the, the, the precedent is there for a, a rather young team that maybe hasn't had a lot of playoff success to kind of go in with the swagger and get punched in the head, right? Okay, secondly, I, th I just think that they, they, they're still too one-dimensional. They win games, they score their way out of, out of trouble, uh, they still give up a lot of shots, they rely too heavily on a goaltender who, is, who has a very, very checkered past in the playoffs. And this, of course, I mean, we talked about them going out and getting... They don't need a number one defenseman. They need a number two defenseman, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if they do go out and get that guy at the deadline, then that changes everything. But let's assume they have the roster they have now. I don't think this roster is built to win in the playoffs. And I think they are going to take a serious smacking in the first round. And then they're going to re... They're going to readjust everything and go, okay, what do we need to move forward here? Uh, hmm. The only counter-argument I'd say is I would say they had their punch in the face last year when they blew a, a third-period lead in a game seven. But um, that's just me. Yeah, no, I th I, no but, but they weren't. They didn't go into last year's playoffs like they're going to go yeah, into Yeah, they weren't expected playoffs. to win that This series. year, they could, they could go into this year's playoffs as one of the top three contenders right. to win They the might win thing. the President's Trophy. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. yeah. Okay, that's fair. I, I can... Can buy into that. You stamp, get on board with that? Approval. Okay, uh, perfect. I don't know why the stamp leaves, <laughs> but whatever. Let's just say it does. It's mailbag time. First one is from Ryan Wargala. It sounds like a, an arms dealer's convention, Wargala. Wargala. Ryan Wargala. Ryan asks, should interference be the next penalty the NHL cracks down on? Hmm. I, I would say they already did crack down on interference to a certain point in 0506 with the obstruction because yeah. even though it was hooking and holding technically but it was for the purpose of interfering with guys slowing them when they exit the zone I don't think interference is the next bugaboo but what do you guys believe? I, I don't think it is either I think if they're going to crack, crack down on anything they should crack down on cross-checking to me, the, the you know the the the, uh, the casual what did you call it before? Casual, the, well, the casual, casual cross. It was casual slash. The casual slash now has mm. become the casual cross check. Yeah. You know, mm. in the corner, in front of the net, 
um, takes away tons of scoring chances. I, I think if they're going to crack down on ever, on anything, it should be that. And I also think that that right now, like with where interference is, maybe you don't like it all the time, but I think there's kind of a method to it. Everybody, I think, has acknowledged that the game has gotten really, really fast. And in some cases, that can make it a little bit dangerous. And I think a little bit of interference here and there, I don't think the league is terribly upset with that, that it might slow the game yeah. down a little bit. And, like those and pick, little pick yeah, plays. Yeah, little pick plays so guys don't, don't end up colliding together and getting hurt. I, I think that that's, I think the league would be okay with that. But to me, it's the, it's the cross-checking that's out of control. Uh, it's interesting, because I was thinking about the speed of the game with the interference. Because I wouldn't mind an interference crackdown simply because when you're looking at the NHL, usually they're trying to figure out a way to get more goals in the game, make it faster. And it's, it's kind of amazing talking to people in the goaltending fraternity about how the slashing crackdown has actually made it harder for them because more skilled players like your Johnny Gaudreau's are getting more time out there, they're getting better looks, the you know, the cross-ice passes are, yeah, are more frequent, the toe yeah, drags, yeah. everything. Yeah. With interference, I, I see what you're saying about the speed, but I, I could also see the NHL saying like, well, let's see what happens here because mm -hmm. you don't want to be <laughs> negating scoring chances. Um, and it, and I also feel that sometimes the NHL doesn't see these unforeseen circumstances. But I guess if we tell them, then maybe they'll know. Well, they don't a lot of times. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of unintended yeah. consequences. So if it's, if it's for the, the offensive side of the game, I think they would look at interference before cross-checking because mm -hmm. cross-checking, it, it's a little more uh, you know, stationary. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't impact the play as much, perhaps. Yeah. Unless you're a forward standing in front of the net, you get cross-checked in the back eight times. Right. Maybe. That's your job. <laughs> Do your job. <laughs> Next one is from Greg, who has the most hardcore Twitter handle I've ever seen. Headstomp31. <laughs> Greg, you sound great, but I don't want to meet you in person. <laughs> Greg says, could you see the Penguins in the market for Sergei Bobrovsky for a cup run? Do they have the assets to pull it off? On one hand, we know Jim Rutherford is a very aggressive GM, and we know that Matt Murray has been a real problem for the Penguins the last couple years. Let's face it, the concussions, yep. and he's yep. not playing well when he is in the lineup. But when it comes to assets, to me, that's the problem. The Penguins have just emptied that cupboard. Absolutely. They don't got none. That's the right? problem. I, I, yeah, I mean, at the risk of getting my head stomped, uh, no, no, and no, and no, no, no. And, and I, I mean, it starts with the first part of the question. Sergei Bobrovsky's not going anywhere. And in the division, the trade team. Yeah, he's not going anywhere. You're competing directly with the Penguins for the Yeah, division. exactly. They're, they're not going to trade Sergei Bobrovsky, period. And they're certainly not going to trade him to the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, I mean, that, that's the answer to the question right there. And secondly, you're right. I mean, there is, wow, that, it's, a, it's a bare, bare cupboard in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and even if you were to say, well, maybe could they get Bobrovsky as a free agent in the summer, his cap demand or his salary demand is going to be way too high for the Penguins. I mean, right. they have too much salary on the books right now. I, I, I don't see the scenario in which they could even get him on the open market when they're... I mean, Matt Murray doesn't make that much money, but he's your starter. Mm -hmm. You'd have and to trade Chris Letang and Matt Murray. Yeah, you'd have to do something big to make it happen. And our last question this week comes from Jordan at Jordan Sampson, or J. Sampson, 198. And Jordan says, What's up with Eric Carlson? He's not where many projected he would be at this point. 
I personally think that this whole Eric Carlson is struggling thing is uh, not a particularly accurate narrative, at least the last time I checked the analytics. I haven't checked them for a week yeah. or so, but I don't think he's playing bad hockey. He's just not exploding with tons of points. But I don't know. I think it's. I think it's people are just seeing that he's not leading all defensemen in points and assuming that he's struggling. But I don't think he is. Well, I, I would say the time is nigh for him to start playing <laughs> a little bit better, wouldn't you guys? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great call. No, I, I, I think that, like, he's a lot like the Sharks in general. Like, there's some nights where he looks really good, and they look really good, and there's some nights where he doesn't look very good at all, and they don't look very good. And the Sharks are a team that they get it. You know, they, I, it takes them, it, that's the kind of team that it takes them about 40 games to really sort of find their feet mm. and to get moving. And, and I think it's the same with Eric Carlson. I think it's going to take him a little while to get over all of this. Like, it's very, very obvious to me, uh, judging by my exchange with him <laughs> <laughs> on Wednesday night in Toronto, that going back to Ottawa was weighing very heavily on his mind. Right. And I, I think that, um, that now that that's over with, now that that's done and they've 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 done the whole thing and now you know next time he goes back next year presumably uh, he'll go back and it'll be it will be less in a Tampa Bay Lightning there, uniform yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there will be less uh, you know there will be a lot less sort of fanfare around it so so I think getting beyond that is one thing and I, I just think that you know I mean he was hurt he rehabbed a lot of the summer and I think he's just like the Sharks in general it's going to take him a while to find his stride. And you're, I think you're right. I mean, I don't. I think the numbers, the analytics numbers, tell a different story than the actual numbers. But I still think that they were expecting more from Eric Carlson yeah. by this point. Yeah, for me, I kind of wonder if missing part of your ankle bone is a bigger deal than might we're, be. We're, we're yeah, yeah, having half feel, an ankle. It feels might like be, people don't talk be. about that yeah. anymore. You know, like it happened, and it's like, hey, it'll be fine. He has half, half an ankle, and he skates for a living. Not that his skating seems to be, like, suffering greatly. He's still very fluid, but it, he hasn't seemed the same since it happened. I mean, he wasn't great in Ottawa in the second half last year. He, he was still yeah. better than most defensemen, but he wasn't Norris Trophy Eric Carlson. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, you know, watching him in, in Toronto the other week, it's the decision-making sometimes where there's, there's hesitation and it's not the sort of thing that would be reflected in analytics because it only happens a couple of times per game, but it can put his team in bad spots. And, I mean, hey, it happens to everybody. It happened to Duncan Keith as well um, once he was sort of coming off his peak and even when he was at his peak. But I think... As you said, Ken, when things are still coming together, it does beg the question of, is this the, is this the top end Eric Carlson that the Sharks thought they were getting, or is he a little bit diminished? And uh, maybe you know, he keeps improving, and we don't even talk about this in two, three months, but I, I'd say it's at least a little bit noticeable to me right now. Yeah, and it's, it's not good timing for him. <laughs> no. It's not good timing at all for him. And you know, I'm looking in Ottawa, and I see that Thomas Shabbat is playing, I think, four, between four and five minutes a game on average more than he did last year. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just have to wonder if, you know, if Eric Carlson were still there, would Thomas Shabbat be getting the minutes that he's getting and getting the opportunity that he's getting mm -hmm. to prove that he's the player that he is? Yeah. You know, we may look back at this, and, I mean, it was bungled. Like, there is no sure. question that the Eric Carlson, Eric Carlson situation 
was bungled from the word go by the Ottawa Senators. But, you know, in one of those crazy things, it may turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to him. And last time I checked, I think uh, Shabbat's still leading all defensemen in points. Or he's yes, yes, yes. So there yep. you go. Fair yep. enough. Well, that's it for this week, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. And a reminder, if you want to learn more about becoming a member, go to thehockeynews.com slash gold.